Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce our storytelling uh, time coming up right here. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we have two new coordinators for the storytelling ministry here uh, at the church, and they've been brainstorming ideas on how to uh, sort of use that time in uh, creative and uh, fun ways. And one of their ideas is to interview small groups in our church so that you get to hear the story of their small group. And hopefully that's going to serve the purpose of not just um, hearing their specific story, but also raising awareness about the small groups ministry in general and um, cause you to uh, join one. And today we're going to kick it off with Holly's small groups. I want to invite you guys to come on up. Um, I want to mention that last service, the first service, as a joke, after I invited them up, I stepped down, and they freaked out, and that was really fun for me, because I'm supposed to interview them. That's the whole idea. (laughs) It's really fun. It's like, uh, hey, I have a new knock-knock joke, but you start. Okay, so we're going to ask you some questions and uh, move this uh, story through. Oh, yes. Uh, the first question is I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves. Uh, tell us your name and tell us your favorite color. I'm Holly Postma in pink. I'm Joanna Liao, blue. I'm Lisa Dong, green. All right. Thank you for that. Um, now, tell us the origin story of this small group. How did it come to be? So about two and a half years ago, Elise Steele approached me and asked if I'd be willing to lead a small group Bible study for moms involved in the MOPS group, and I was super excited to do that, but it became apparent right at the outset that we had a need for study for women across all ages, and so we just opened it up to um, women of all ages. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else in the origin story? How about, how about you guys tell us how you came to join the small group? Okay, yeah. Okay, I can start. Okay. Um, so I joined the small group about um, a year and a half ago. And prior to joining, I had always struggled with um, reading the Bible regularly. And um, I became a Christian in my 20s, but just reading the Bible was always just difficult to make a priority in my life. And I also... Um, just ha- reading on my own had trouble seeing the relevancy of the Bible to, to in my life. Um, and I think just reading on my own probably didn't help. But um, I sort of knew that it was something I wanted to do, and it was on my New Year's resolution list like every year for like literally 10 years. And so I would probably just start reading in you know, January and get to April or to Book of Deuteronomy, and then I would just give up <laughs> and then start all over on next year. So um, when I first joined the group, I didn't really come with any expectations. It was just sort of to meet women and to have that fellowship and have some accountability to read the Bible together. Um, and I have to admit, I probably only did the homework like once out of four or five times. <laughs> um, but I always really enjoyed the discussions that we would have um, and just hearing the insights of the other women um, that actually did their homework. Um, so I started realizing, well, you know what, I should do my own homework so I can add to the discussion. 
Um, and I started really enjoying reading scripture and, and talking about it with the other women on Thursdays. Um, and I also felt that the Holy Spirit was really moving in my life at the same time. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just feel like the time that I spent invested in reading the Bible, um, it's just paid back in so many ways in terms of the Holy Spirit um, being in my life and just feeling really close to God at this season in my life. Um, yeah, so I'm really grateful for these women and just for their encouragement and prayers um, just to be able to, oh, right, oh, right, I forgot. I finished the Bible two weeks ago, the entire Bible. <laughs> right, and so um, that was, yeah, a 10-year accomplishment, and so I have these women to thank for that. <laughs> Before Lisa goes, uh, how many of you in the last 10 years have read the Bible at least once? <laughs> Bunch of show-offs trying to, <laughs> I'll shine you, Joanna. <laughs> yeah. So I joined uh, the small group uh, one year and a uh, half, one and a half years ago. Um, I, I enjoyed reading Bible by myself. And uh, I feel a joy to, to connect with other believers. So I'm very um, happy to find um, the small group that uh, Holly was facilitating at that time. Um, for... We studied uh, Proverbs, Hebrews, Galatians, and the Psalms. To me, I just feel that I gained so much knowledge of God and learned so much from the wonderful ladies I studied together. And particularly, I feel that I, I learned so much about compassion, gentleness, um, forgiveness, humility. Those things um, are hard to understand unless you experience them. So I feel that I learned those virtues from those uh, from the ladies I study with, and I'm so grateful that uh, God just shined a light in our hearts, and we uh, ask questions, answer questions, and uh, sometimes drive a little bit deeper, and then we um, just talk. Um, I feel, um, yeah, just totally um, very valuable time span. It's become my, one of my um, Thursday routine. I, I enjoy going to the small group and share the knowledge with uh, uh, everyone. Thank you. Tell us uh, some fun facts about your group. Okay, I have the flag. Uh, we love uh, food, and so we uh, just decided to do brunches, uh, um, Periodically, um, uh, at the very beginning of the um, study, uh, at the very beginning of the, the se session, and then we do it in the middle of the um, session, and then later, the, at, the, at the end of the uh, session. What's the best food that you've tasted so far? Oh, best food? <laughs> Uh, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the the cash and also love the uh, cinnamon roll. Yeah, I even took some home for I've my had daughter. Cinnamon rolls. Yes, that was a. I agree. Yeah, she. Yeah. I've had her sushi rolls too. That's awesome. I just come for the food part. <laughs> Any other fun facts? Oh yes. Um, so we call it a guilt-free zone. So. Um, if you're running late to our group or you haven't read the study like I haven't in many, on many occasions, that it's guilt-free, that you're free to join us and just um, enjoy the fellowship and the discussion. Yeah. No apologies. Yeah. No apologies. <laughs> Great. Uh, I want to ask you now, Holly, uh, what was 
the leader's journey like for you getting to this place? I know you, and I know you've been leading for a long time. And tell us a little bit about that, because a lot of people are intimidated about leading a small group. So when I was 10, my life fell apart, literally, and I um, began to feel kind of life as a blowtorch, and I started mining the scriptures, looking for stability and hope and answers to hard questions and ultimately looking for the truth. And by the time I was in my 20s, um, I knew I was super hungry for more and more, but I needed other people who were hungry too. So I figured a way to find out is to start leading small groups. So I started in my early 20s, and I found and have found over the last 30 years women who are hungry, and they want more of the Lord, more of his word, and more of his spirit. And so I find that feeds me and answers the deep um, longing and hunger in my own heart. And the word is relevant. And so we're, whatever we're going through, you know, whatever that blowtorch is sending our way, um, the word has answers for us, and it draws us into the presence of God, and so I find that um, Bible study, um, meditation, memorization uh, draws me closer and, and heals me, so, you know, it's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> so I hear you saying that out of your own uh, need and out of your own desire to grow, uh, God's using uh, that personal journey to help others on their journey. Yeah, and I think, you know, we are ultimately evangelists for whatever we deeply believe in, but we also want people who are in the same headspace that we're in. And so I've just been, you know, looking for other people who have that same hunger. Um, Jesus tells Peter to feed my sheep over and over and over again, but ultimately when we feed his sheep, we get fed ourselves. And so our own hunger is satisfied in the process of if there are some women in here who are interested in your group, what do they need to know? So we're going to start on September 12th, which is a Thursday, I'm pretty sure. And we're going to meet here at the church in some unknown room. And we start at 9.30 in the morning, and we go till 11. And we're prompt. Super well, prompt. Will there be food? And there will be food. All right. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Good morning. My name is Joanna Liao. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 to 7 from the New International Version. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We are starting a new sermon series in the book of Proverbs. And uh, I feel like this book is so chock full of good stuff. Uh, that's really helpful for our personal lives, but also the way we sort of interact with the culture all around us. And so as I started looking through this book, 
uh, began to feel like we should give ourselves a little bit of room to see uh, what we want to mine from it. And so uh, I don't have a definite end date yet. Uh, we may go all day through Advent or we may end a little bit sooner. Uh, but there's a lot here and I want us to uh, get from it all that we need and what God has for us in this season. Um, some of us have studied the book of Proverbs before, and it's sort of known as a collection of sayings. And that's what the word proverb means. It's sort of sayings, wise sayings, little nuggets, if you will. And in the past, that's the only way I've ever read Proverbs, is to sort of understand it as a collection, a sort of, uh, you know, nonsensical uh, in how and why they're gathered. But I knew there was more to it than that. And so I started praying that way, asking God to help me see the one message that all these other nuggets are sort of, uh, or how, 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 does the, uh, how do these pieces orbit around the one truth? And I think I found something, and that's the truth I want to introduce to us today, uh, that the book of Proverbs isn't really just a collection, a random collection of sayings, but it really is an invitation for us to become humble, for us to get into a place where we are not just learning something that's external to us, but learning something because we are hungry, because we are desperate, because we have deep needs that are pressing on us. And so that's the way I want us to think about the book of Proverbs. I want to start with some stories that help illustrate this. Uh, I haven't told uh, Susie stories in a while. Uh, but I think about this to this day. It's still kind of fresh to me. Uh, the long uh, story won't be told today. But the short version is that when I first saw Susie, I basically fell in love with her. And I pursued her really hard for about four years. And she rejected me for four years, stiff-armed me. And it was kind of traumatic. And so I don't think I'm over it yet. And so to this day, uh, I think about the fact that she kept me at arm's length for four long years. And it's not that I wanted to. It's not like I signed some papers committing to pursuing her for four years. She was like a bad song. She was stuck in my head. I could not get her out. I tried to forget about her. I tried to lose my feelings. And sometimes I'd fortify, you know, walls around my heart, and I'd be totally over her. And then I see her. And then the walls were made of wax, it turns out. And it would just go away. And my feelings would return. And so that lesson is something I'm still learning every day. And so throughout, you know, our marriage, and this summer we'll be celebrating 22 years I think about the fact that I used to pursue her all the time, still. And so, for example, you know, when she, she does the shopping in our family, and she has a routine. She goes to Costco in Soto. She does all the Costco shopping there. And then she goes to McPherson's, which is a discount fruit market. And then uh, she comes home. But, you know, it's the city, and there's stuff going on, and she's got a lot of shopping to do, a lot of things to carry. So on a regular basis... Uh, out of the pure goodness of my own unselfish heart, I ask her if I, she wants company, and I offer to show, uh, show for her around. While she, I mean, to be sure, I don't help her with the shopping at all. When we go to Costco, I do my own thing, you know, eating all the samples and looking at the new electronics or whatever. And then she may find me in the food court uh, eating a hot dog because it's such a good deal, a buck fifty still for a hot dog and a drink. 
And then uh, while she's at McPherson's and she's doing the fruit stuff, I, I'm in the car on my phone and patiently waiting for her to finish her deed. But she asked, she's a grateful person. She says, Peter, why do you always offer to drive me? It's so nice of you. And I always tell her, Susie, can you imagine if you asked me to drive you to Costco when we were in college? What a golden opportunity that would be. I would do that in a heartbeat to get to spend that time with you and to be your chauffeur. That'd be amazing. And so when I look at it from that perspective, it's such a sweet deal for me. Or at night she would say, oh, Peter, I forgot to get water. Could you get me some water? And we're already in bed and half asleep. And then I think to myself, what would I do if we were in college? She calls me up on the dorm phone and says, Peter, would you get me a glass of water? (laughs) I mean, I remember wondering what she looked like when she brushes her teeth. Just what does this creature look like when they got a toothbrush? I mean, just... Things that are totally ignorable and mundane or even annoying or can't be bothered with now were precious opportunities back when I was pursuing her. Because it's not about the thing itself. It's really about my hunger. It's really about my desire, my longing, the context, the situation. The place I'm in defines how I experience everything. And if if you've lived life for a minute, you know that's true. When we were getting married and we sort of had the template that we grew up with, we didn't realize that we actually, uh, you know, replicate our families of origin. You know, I remember my mom telling me that when you get married, it's two families coming together. I remember thinking, nonsense. I'm my own free individual and I'll find, uh, you know, another individual who's free and we will start our own family of origin. She said, no, are you kidding me? Of course, you come from somewhere, and she's going to come from somewhere. Anyway, turns out my mom was right. And what she knew, uh, unbeknownst to her, was that she's going to cook for her husband. And what I expected, unbeknownst to me, is that she was going to cook for me. And so, perfect match made in heaven. And so she asks my mom from a place of stress, she says, how do I cook for your son? What does he like? Could you help me? And she says, my mom in her infinite wisdom says, Susie, don't worry about a thing. The only thing you have to worry about is that he's hungry. It will taste good. And that's true. The most important ingredient in any recipe is hunger. What tastes good if you're not hungry? Speaking of hungry, uh, I was taking this long history class, boring history class about how the Swedish Covenant Church came to be. That's the part of the, that's a denomination that we are a part of today. And it was in the dead of winter. It's really cold and really snowy. And I drove, I remember, just to treat myself an hour and 10 minutes with my study partner to this world-famous seafood restaurant in Chicago called Bob Chin's. And they happened to have, on a Tuesday night, a surf and turf special. And it was just perfect for poor students like us. And it was like $11.99 or something. You get a tiny little piece of steak and a tiny little chicken lobster tail. And they had all-you-can-eat biscuits. And it was just about the tastiest thing we had ever eaten in our lives. And now since that meal, I've gone back to Bob Chin's over a dozen times because we're in Chicago on a regular basis. And I've tried to replicate that experience. Have I been able to do it? 
No, because it was an event. It was a moment, and it's gone. It wasn't about the steak. It wasn't about the lobster. It was about, it was about the situation. It was about my hunger. It was about the snow, the final exam we were studying for, and how boring that class was. <laughs> right? All that set me up to have the best meal ever. My hunger defined the experience. I hiked Mount Sai for the first time about uh, six and a half years ago with a guy that used to come here named Marshall Brown. And I had never really done hikes before, not like that. And I didn't know it was this, you know, seven to nine mile hike that it was sort of really steep. And I didn't understand the whole thing. It was brand new to nature. And so... Uh, we are on this hike, and at this time, we were training for uh, one of the marathons that we ran together, and we said to ourselves, we're going to run Mount Sai. And you're laughing because you've done Mount Sai, and you know only the most elite athletes can do that, and why is that funny? <laughs> and so we start off, and we didn't make it but about a quarter mile, and then we were totally winded and done. We decided to hike the rest of the way up. We made it to the top. And right as we were sitting down, Marshall, uh, I didn't know he had this, but he took out a little, little bag, and inside was one piece of stale day-old bread that his wife had made and a piece of warm cheese because it was next to his body the whole time we were hiking. And he looked over at me. He said, you don't have any food? I said, I didn't know we had to bring food. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how hikes worked. I didn't have water, nothing. So he looks over at me. He breaks me off a piece of that bread and gives me a little piece of cheese. I took that warm cheese. I stuffed it into the middle of the bread, made a little bread nugget sandwich steel. I popped it in my mouth. And guess what? It was the tastiest thing ever. It was probably disgusting. But it was so good because I was hungry. I was desperate. Right? It's my hunger that defines the experience. I remember this one time in seventh grade. And this is the first time that I was coming to grips with the fact that I was a sinner. And I remember hearing about God's love for the first time in that context. Emotionally, I was just feeling awful about myself. And then the preacher, I still remember to this day what he said. He talked about Father Abraham. And he said, to the people, to us who are listening, he said, when we go outside, we're in rural Pennsylvania near the Poconos. And I'm from, a, I'm from New York City. I've basically never seen stars before, right? And it was my first time in Pennsylvania. And he says, when you go outside, I want you to look up at the night sky. There's going to be so many stars up there. And I want you to know that one of these stars is you. Because... Father Abraham, when he was first coming to know God, God invited him to look up at the night sky. And he said, you see all these stars, Abraham? These are all your descendants. These are your children. And you are going to be the father of their faith. And so the preacher said, look up. This is a sign that God knew you by name back when he was talking to Abraham. And I did that. I went outside, I looked up, and the sky was just littered, dirty with stars. And I, I 
felt the reality that one of those stars was me. And Abraham, he didn't know it, but God knew it. One of the stars that Abraham saw was named Peter. And that reality of God knowing me by name, this idea of time was nonsense. God is so beyond time. And that hit me like a truck. The truth of that. And I felt God's love for me. Because it's not about the thing itself, but it's about the place that I was at. If I am desperate, if I am humble, if I am hungry, then that's what defines everything that comes after. That's how life works. So what matters most are not the answers, but it's that you have a question, that you're curious, that you're longing, that you have a need, that you have the right, broken, open attitude towards something. You know, that you have a hunger that you're in touch with. That's really what defines reality for you, what constitutes how you experience life. I want to invite you to uh, remember a time in your life when you were really, really hungry, when you were open, when you were desperate, when you were hurting in some way, and you were just wanting God to speak to you. You felt a spiritual hunger in you. You don't have to be a Christian to have had these moments. A time when you were in what the Desert Fathers call a thin place. Recall a time like that. I'll give you a second. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, I want you to give that hunger a rating. How hungry were you back then? Okay. Now, I want you to think about your hunger today. What rating would you give that hunger today? I think my experience is that when I am um, in a hungry place, when I'm in a hurting place maybe, when I'm in a desperate place, I want nothing more than to be done with it. But when I look back at it, I realize those were actually the good times when I was humble, when my eyes were open, and I was present and engaged, and I wasn't cynical, but I was grateful. There was an attitude. There was a spirit about me that I wasn't aware of at that time, but that was good. It was good to be hungry. This series uh, really is about Oh, it's so funny. Siri just came up because I said series. <laughs> um, this series is really not about the nuggets of wisdom that we are going to uh, come to uh, enjoy. You know, little delectable morsels we get to pop in our mouths and, you know, bat around our, uh, you know, skulls for a second and go, oh, that's really cool. That's really true. That's, no, it's not about that. It's about you getting to a hungry place, a humble place. So that whatever you hear tastes so good. And it sort of directly applies to who you are and who God has called you to be. It's about a personal transformation. Not just about your brain growing in size. 
And so that's hopefully what the series will be about. The title is Life Pro Tip. And that will also be the title of this sermon today. So let's uh, get, uh, get a little taste of that today uh, t- through today's uh, verses. Okay, we'll start with this. This green screen. Let's say that this screen represents all the knowledge of the world, of the universe, of existence, of reality. That everything there is to know about how biology works, about physics and astronomy and quantum mechanics, everything in math. One plus one is two is part of this screen. And, uh, you know, the whatever, dark matter is part of this screen. And your appendix, what it's for and what really happened to JFK. And all of that is here on this green screen. Everything that there is to understand and know about reality itself is summed up on this green screen. Everything. If that's everything, what percentage of this green screen would you say you know? About half? About a quarter? An eighth? How, I mean... If we added up everything that everyone in this room knows and will ever know and have ever known, even stuff we've forgotten, every textbook we've ever read, every Wikipedia entry, every Google search you've ever done, how much of this screen do we collectively know? What about everyone in the whole world that's ever lived? All collective knowledge of every single human being. We put it all together. What percentage of the screen do we know? Would that percentage be visible? Would it be a pixel? I think this is something like 920 by 1080 or something like that, or 767 by 1080, or those are number of pixels. How much of it do we know? We know so little. We have so much reason to be hungry, to live in a kind of tension that's kind of always pulling at us, calling to us, inviting us, saying to us, there's more, there's more, there's more. This is what I imagine heaven to be like. It's not going to be a place of arrival where I'm sort of done and I sort of take my pack off and I can sort of rest for all of eternity but it's this place where I am face to face with the true and living God who is eternal, who is limitless, and I'm a finite being. I'm borrowing a little bit of eternity to sustain my eternal existence, but forever living in tension with God who is all. And so for all of eternity, I'm going to be learning and growing and being amazed and fascinated and marveling and awestruck. Listen, I went uh, on a 28-hour backpacking trip to Cathedral Rock yesterday. By the way, don't go because the weather thing is doing something weird and there are so many mosquitoes. And I have over 200 mosquito bites that Susie has counted. I'm doing everything in my willpower right now to not be scratching myself to death. But regardless of the mosquitoes, I could not believe the view. 
There was Cathedral Rock, which is just jagged and just sharp points everywhere. Just It looks like somebody took a billion little sharp rocks and glued them together. I'm staring up at this thing going, that is amazing. What an interesting formation. And then in the backdrop, there are these like dark brown mountains that have like white, snow white patches on them. And then there's this valley of trees. And then there's this pile of giant rocks that looks like some giant hands just sort of just like gather them together. And they're all in one view. And then at the bottom of it, there is this blue-green, just like alpine lake. And I just could not take it in enough. I couldn't understand it. I didn't know how to appreciate it. But I was completely awestruck, staring at what was in front of me. And the mos- even the mosquitoes disappeared for a while. That's the tension. That's just amazement times a bazillion for all of eternity an increasing measure can you imagine do you realize that as you get older you become wiser not because you know more but because you realize how little you know that's a definition of wisdom is getting dumber if you want to get wise you got to get stupid you feel that tension even more And so the more perspective you have from a dumb place, the wiser people accuse you of being. And that's what I imagine heaven is like. For all of eternity, I feel dumber every day because I'm getting wiser, because I'm learning so much, but also learning so how, how little I know. That's the whole journey. The smartest person is the dumbest person in the room. That you come in contact with your hunger, with your ignorance, with your desperate state. And if you're moving towards a place where you feel smug and you've arrived and you know and all the information you gather is just confirmation bias to shore up your viewpoint, you're not getting wiser. You're getting worse. But if you are improving, you should just feel this tension pulling at you, inviting you, calling you forth. Take a deep breath right now. Consider all that is around you. This great big universe that we live in. Francis Bacon, he says, if you begin with certainty, you will end in doubt. If you begin with doubt, you will end in certainty. Why? Because if you are certain, your brain is turned off. You're not asking any questions. You're not kicking any tires. If you show up to a used car, I just bought a used car, so this is fresh for me, and I just love it instantly, and I tell the guy, I'll take it. What am I in in store for? Like, I'm going to be really unhappy for a long time with that car. But if I start looking at that car with a bit of skepticism, a bit of doubt, then I start asking questions. I start kicking the tires. I start looking under the hood. Maybe I even bring it to a mechanic shop and ask them to test it out. Do a test drive. 
My brain is engaged in a learning posture. So then I eventually end with more certainty than I started with. But if you start having arrived already, you'll never get there. Robert Clinton, he's sort of been a distant mentor of mine. He uh, was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And he did this massive research project, him, him and a team, where they studied thousands of leaders from around the globe throughout history. And they compiled seven things that all great leaders who finish well have in common. And then five things that all poor leaders who finish poorly have in common across cultures, across time. So this is an amazing list to make, right? And he wrote this book called The Making of a Leader where he talks through these seven and five things. And he says there's only one thing that both lists have in common. And that is that leaders who finish poorly stop learning. And that leaders who finish well, they never stop learning. That they are what he calls lifelong learners who are engaged in three kinds of learning. Informal, non-formal, and formal. Informal is just random learnings that you do on a daily basis on your own. And non-formal are like conferences you go to or book book clubs you join, something that requires commitment from you. And then the formal is when you're working towards a degree. He says all great leaders throughout history are engaged in these three kinds of learning. They never stop learning. In other words, they always stay in a place of doubt, of asking questions, of curiosity, of humility, of being a student. Which one are you? We'll go through these verses here quick. And there's some lessons to be learned here. I think they make our point for the day, though. Verse 2a says this, for gaining wisdom and instruction. This word instruction is interesting. If it had just stopped at wisdom, I would have stopped right there. But it says, and instruction. And that second word is supposed to be a reiteration of the first word. That's the way Hebrew poetry worked. And so for gaining wisdom... And instruction now spells out what he meant by wisdom. And the word instruction here is the word for manual, like the how-to book. And so it sort of invites the question, what are you trying to build? Why do you need these IKEA instructions for? Right? It's not just for the sake of gaining wisdom. It's not for its own sake, but it's to serve a certain purpose. So that's what we learned from that. And then verse 2b, for understanding words of insight. That's an interesting way to put it because why doesn't it say for gaining insight? Because the Bible doesn't care about us just gaining, amassing a pile of insights. Anybody can do that. The internet already is that. You can outsource insights. You don't have to know anything anymore in your own brain because it's all out there. Right? Subcontract that out. But, it's more than that. 2B says for understanding insight. Do you realize having insight and understanding that insight are two different things? Because you can know stuff. You know people who know stuff and you realize they're not that great. They're really dull. They're full of themselves. And they talk on and on. 
but understanding insight? Now that's somebody worth stopping for. Verse 3, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. Here's that word instruction again. And so in verse 3, Solomon tells us what the instruction is for, what the manual is for. It's not just so you can be a smart person. It's not so that you can have a higher status in society and drop those nuggets at parties while you're holding a glass of wine. But it's so that you can be an agent of what is right, of what is just, and what is fair. Wisdom has a purpose. Knowledge has a purpose. Verse 4, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. It's an invitation for us to humble ourselves, to be young, to be simple. And then verse 5, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance. This is an invitation to be a lifelong learner. Right? Solomon who wrote this book, says, if you're wise, I invite you to listen. If you're wise, I invite you to add to your wisdom. If you are a discerning person, come, get guidance. There's more. There's more. There's another door. Open that door. There's a window. Open that window. There's another. Verse 6, for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. There's wiser people out there still. You may be wise, but you're not the wisest. So come, listen to the wise. You who are wise, come get wisdom. You who are discerning, come get guidance. But this is where all this is building to is verse 7, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This reminded me of this one verse. There's a story uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Peter, uh, he's one of the disciples of Jesus. He was one of the uh, pillars of the church. Uh, He's the character that the whole Catholic church is built on. He's considered the first pope, right? So he's a big deal. But he was an uneducated fisherman, a blue-collar worker, And he had been fishing all night, and he caught nothing. And then he encounters Jesus. This may have been one of the earlier interactions. We're not quite sure which one was the very first, but this is one of the early ones. And one of the ways, experiences through which Peter came to put his faith in Christ. But he's been fishing all night. He's caught nothing. And then Jesus says, Peter, put your net, throw your net over on this side of your boat. And then Peter, he says, well, I'm an expert. I'm the expert. You're not a fisherman. I've been at this all night. That's what he says. And then it's almost like he catches himself. And he says, but because you say so. So he becomes a student. He humbles himself. Right? He becomes a learner. Even though he knows everything about fishing. He makes himself a student. He says, because you say so, I will throw my net. And then he throws in that over to the side where Jesus told him to. And then he probably went to pull it out, expecting nothing. And then he realized there was so much 
fish. The net was so heavy, he called over to other fishermen around him and asked for their help to pull in this catch. And then you know what Peter does? He drops the nets, forgets about the fish he just caught, and he falls down to his knees. And then he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, why would that be the reaction of Peter? You realize what's happened? Peter is encountering the divine for the first time. This divine grace. Who, this man who is capable of doing this is talking to me, is singling me out. He knows me by name. He sees me. He cares about me. He cares about my plight as a fisherman. How can this be? He's encountering God's kindness for the first time. And the gut reaction to somebody's love is always a feeling of utter humiliation. Do you know this? Do you know when somebody loves you, it's utterly terrifying? I remember uh, Susie's thrown me two surprise birthday parties in my life. The first one was in Boston. I had no idea. Super clueless guy, right? And then it begins to dawn on me that something is happening. And then there's this surprise and people came from everywhere. And you know what my first reaction was? Total humiliation. Because I felt so loved, so seen, so cared for. You've been planning this? I have no idea how I've been treating you these last two weeks when you've been planning this. Maybe I was a jerk to you. Maybe I was, you know, impatient with you and unkind. And you've been still, despite all of it, you've been loving on me by planning this event. And all these people, I don't know if I were nice to them. In other words, I wasn't doing anything consciously to deserve love, to earn or sustain their love. And yet, they had made up their minds that they were going to come to this party and shower me with grace. And in that instant, I was, I was just aware of it. And my reaction was, I'm not worthy. I felt so stupid. And, I, and part of me just wanted everybody to go away because it was so humiliating to be loved like that. And that's what the scriptures teach, that it's the kindness of God that turns us to repentance. That when we encounter God seeing us, we respond with fear, not because he's going to kill us, but because he's going to love us. And that's so scary. We realize how undeserving we are in the face of true love. Because we know, we know we're not loving, we're not lovable. That's not why they love us. When somebody really, really gives us everything, we are humbled and we begin to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the great self-awareness that we have to come to. How utterly deplorable we really are. How all our motives are tainted and twisted and perverted and mostly hidden even from ourselves. How manipulative we are. How conceited and arrogant we are. How tiny and calculating and vindictive we are. How selfish and self-centered we are. How insecure. How unbelieving. 
how skeptical and cynical we are. This self-awareness is the beginning of knowledge. This is the place of hunger that the Proverbs invite us to. All of the truths in the book of Proverbs can't touch us unless this one truth sets the tone for us. The fear of the Lord, that he loves you, that he cares for you. He sees you. He knows you by name. You're one of the stars up there. And he's inviting us into this tension to be pulled upwards and out to know him. To start putting a dent on that green screen in ways that we have never before. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus is logos. Logos is a Greek word that means word or meaning or knowledge or truth. All of the wisdom there is to be had somehow is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we encounter him in the book of Proverbs, then we will begin to have knowledge. And so that's the invitation to this series. I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want to pray this uh, verse over us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God, it is our confession this morning that our bellies are full, that our heads are big. We are consumers. We are critics. We are entitled. We can't be bothered. But God, you can open us up. You can give to us a heart of flesh that's soft and hungry and humble. And so God, I pray that you would Give that gift to each one of us that we will be in a desperate place, a place where we're in touch with how lost we are. All the wisdom, all the wise things in the world can't save us unless we are open, unless we are students. So God, I pray as we uh, set the stage for this series that you will uh, give to us this hunger. We thank you for today's word and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.